You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. To analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. I wonder what anarchy is about. Very simple. Know what they tell you? The word uh, anarchism or, comes from the Greek anarchos, which means without rulers. The uh, mission statement, I like to use that word, <laughs> of the anarchist movement, a bit of a tautology, but the mission statement of the anarchist movement is to create a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to control the lives of billions of people on this planet. It's very simple, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power, that's share power, which can be done through uh, direct democratic means, and it's, this, and it's a struggle to uh, share wealth, hold wealth in common, share wealth and use it for uh, for uh, satisfaction of real, not manufactured human needs. So whether you call yourself an anarchist or not, there's a long history of people being involved across the world in different uh, centuries and different millenniums, uh, involved in struggles to develop power and share wealth. Now, what a week. What a week. Some weeks it's a little bit hard getting now things together, but this week, so much garbage out there. So much garbage. I'd like to start off with uh, one of the uh, councils consuls assisting the uh, commission into the uh, hotel quarantine fiasco in uh, Victoria. And they used the words which uh, sent a shiver up my spine because it highlights what I've been saying now for over 40 years. She, the word that was used was creeping assumption. What the investigation has shown is there was a creeping assumption that only the private sector private security guards could deal with the situation. Creeping assumption. This is a horrific concept. What it means is that the public service in Victoria and most other parts of Australia have, over the last 40 years, basically become the conduit by which the private sex sector maximises its profit. It's hard to believe that it wasn't one bureaucrat, one politician, 
whether you're in a senior or a junior position, who saw the fallacy of hiring private security firms to deal with the hotel quarantine situation when the risks were so high. That was the creeping assumption. So we now have a public service which works for the private sector. Extraordinary. It's in its DNA. It's in every synapse neuron of the public service. It's in its blood system, in its circulation system. The concept of the public service is there to assist the private sector to maximise profits at the expense of the people they theoretically serve. If there is one positive thing about COVID-19, is it has highlighted how the public service across this country has been hijacked through legislation, through the pursuit of a privatisation agenda, and it's been hijacked and it is used to maximise profits for the private sector, irrespective of the human, social, environmental and national cost. Creeping assumption. The creeping assumption within the huge Department of Human Services, a mega department, which services over six ministers in the Andrews-led Labor government, a huge department, not one bureaucrat, not one politician, could actually see, could see what was going to happen. Now, maybe some lower-level bureaucrats saw what was happening, but this department, the public service in Victoria and the rest of Australia, so centralised, so fossilised, so bureaucratised that it is not able to address the problems they are there to address. It's just horrendous. Now, don't think I'm just picking on the Andrews Red Labor government. Let's move into another sector. Let's move into the aged care sector where we saw the um, chief medical officer talk about the fact there are unnecessary deaths in the aged care sector because of the Commonwealth Government's inability to uh, deal with the situation. Uh, It's all very well to point the finger at the aged care regulator. Now, I just want to go through a number of steps about how privatisation works and how the private sector, through the deregulation mantra, is given open slather to do what it likes when a public service is privatised, which means it's given away, virtually given away to the private sector. It's very simple. The government says to you, oh, you know, what we need to do is we need to privatise the service. It'll be more efficient. We will, you know, you will save money. Anybody who's seen the disasters which the privatisation of the... uh, of energy has caused in Victoria and other parts of Australia will understand that that's a lie. But it, but it's worse than that. It's worse than giving away the family silver to the private sector. It's worse than that. Because the government tells you at the state and federal level, whether it's Labor or Liberal, you know, a coalition government or a Labor government, and they've both, you know, been up to this to their necks, will say to you, well, we will pass legislation which will regulate, that's right, regulate the private sector in that particular area. Let's look at aged care. 
So they set up an aged care regulator to regulate the behaviour of aged care facilities, most of which are privately owned these days, most of which are owned by five large corporations, you know, for-profit corporations. So we've got these regulations, and then they say, well, we've appointed a regulator with staff. The problem is that in every situation you look at where privatisation has occurred, whether it's the energy sector, whether it's uh, early childhood development, whether it's the aged care sector, whether it's the health sector, the regulator does not have the power to enforce the legislation which has been passed through the state or federal parliament. Not only does it not have the power, as we saw the Banking Royal Commission and how weak ASIC was, it doesn't have the resources or the staff to police the situation. It's a little bit like passing a law to say that, uh, you know, you can't murder your neighbour. If you murder your neighbour you'll end up in jail. But then you don't give the police force the power or the resources to deal with the situation. And what we are seeing, I know it's a little bit of a stress, but what we're actually seeing is people dying, not just now because of COVID-19, but people dying because of industrial accidents, of workplace accidents, people dying because of stress in the workplace and in the community. It's just extraordinary. So what you do is you privatise the sector, you appoint your political mates that have the same ideological bent as the uh, you know the titular head of that particular regulatory authority, you don't give it the power to enforce the parliamentary legislation and you don't give it the resources to ensure that that parliamentary legislation is enforced. And that's why we hear that the aged care uh, regulator has only visited 30, personally visited, that's the whole regulatory authority, 30 of the 220 aged care facilities in this country that have had COVID-19. And as we know, the majority of deaths are occurring in aged care facilities. And if you look at the figures, although the number of COVID-19 cases around Australia has diminished greatly, including Victoria, the number of deaths, including in Victoria, continues to be significant. So it's not a matter of just pointing your finger at the regulator. What we have to do is we have to look at the whole system from go to woe. We have to, and in the end, we are personally responsible. That's right, we as a community. You may not be personally responsible as an individual because maybe you've pursued a different agenda, you've been laughed at, marginalised, pushed aside because you think the public service should actually uh, look after the public interest, not private interest, and you've seen some type of dinosaur. But the reality is that we have allowed this to occur because as a population, as a community, as a nation state, election after election, legislative agenda after legislative agenda, we have, as a community, supported deregulation. We have supported privatisation. 
we have supported globalisation. We have supported corporatisation so we could buy some cheaper, you know, goods, maybe a greater range of goods at a cheaper price. We have supported this as a community. You may not have supported it individually, but the people around you that you live with have supported it. So in many regards, we only have ourselves to blame because we have been stupid enough to believe the mantra that private is good, public is bad. Private is good, public is bad. If you believe that mantra, just look at what's happening in the United States of America. I don't particularly care who becomes the next president, whether it's Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden. The fact is that the free enterprise system which exists in the land of the so-called brave and the three should give concern to everybody because this is what happens when we allow that sector to dominate every aspect of human existence, whether it's culture, whether it's social interaction, you know, whether it's communication, whether it's the workforce, and the list goes on and on. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. If you think I'm angry, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. I am just disappointed that so many people for so long have believed the mantra that private is good, public is bad. And let's not forget, let's look what private enterprise is about. Private enterprise is about private investment for private profit. Last week, you know, we spoke about the uh, green capitalism. This week, we're looking at what the private sector has actually done of the public sector in this country. It's an extraordinary situation which we have allowed to continue to occur because we think we've got some cheaper cars. Somehow, everything will be all right. Now, this program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. If you're interested in joining a group, a political organisation that, uh, you know, supports the concept of the public sector should be for public good, that's public interest before corporate interest, well, I encourage you to look at their website, pipsi.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. I'm a member and the registered officer of public interest before corporate interest. Joining is easy. Download the application form. Read it. If you support our what we're about, I encourage you to join. Once we have 550 members, we'll be able to apply for registration of the federal political party, and after that, we'll apply for registration of the state party in different states across this country. But without your support, public interest or corporate interest will be stillborn. It's that simple. Once again, democracy or direct democracy, or any type of democracy, is not about casting a ballot every three to four years to elect a representative to make decisions for you when you know that in the majority of cases, that representative is basically doing the bidding of that small section of society controls the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. Democracy is about involvement. It's about agitation. It's about ensuring that in between those periods that issues continue to bubble over, that parliaments are forced to take our needs into account. 
You know, globalisation is an interesting concept. It's an interesting concept because obviously there are good things about globalisation and a lot of bad things about globalisation. But I'd just like to look at two different nation states. One free enterprise, a dictatorship, Thailand, and the other one, uh, what I call a state capitalist society, uh, China. And they've both passed laws which are quite interesting. Now, most nation states pass laws regarding the activities of their citizens or people who are, you know, um, transgress those laws, right? It's usually uh, contained within uh, the uh, national border. Now, the Chinese government has recently passed a law which is very interesting because it means that everybody in the world Everybody in the world who criticises the Chinese Communist Party can be arrested and charged if they visit China or Hong Kong. That's the nature of the law. Obviously, it's directed at uh, Chinese citizens who've left the country, but it also affects every single other person on the planet. Now, if you think this is just a communist Chinese a communist Chinese Communist Party concept, think again. The Thai government has had laws in place for over 50 years which make it an offence to criticise the monarchy. And we've seen protests recently, mainly led by students, uh, trying to tackle that particular law. Now, we saw a number of years ago an Australian academic who had written two derogatory, well, they weren't even derogatory, critical uh, sentences about the monarchy in Thailand. And when he visited Thailand, he was arrested, spent some time in jail, because he's in uh, jail for seven years uh, until the Australian government was able to winkle him out of the situation. Now, I don't know if many people understand this, that if you visit Thailand and you've criticised publicly or even privately the royal family, especially the king. You can be jailed for up to seven years. It's as simple as that. So these are laws that govern the activities of everybody in the world. And if you're stupid enough to go there, well, you may be, you may even not even realise that there is a whole department with thousands of people in it which monitor uh, things around the world, books, and discussions regarding the royal family in Thailand. And what we are seeing recently is the globalisation of the reach of particular nation states around the globe, passing laws, not just that affect the, uh, their citizens and not just affect people who visit those countries, but affect everybody on the planet. So it's something to uh, keep heed of. Uh, it's something that we uh, we need to uh, remember. All right, let's move on. Now, there are beat-ups beat and beat-ups. Now, the, the current beat-up by the Morrison-led uh, coalition government is about the Maritime Union of Australia. Now, the Maritime Union of Australia is involved in very limited, protected... That's right, limited, protected disputation with Patrick's. They've actually signed an agreement with the Dubai company, which controls a lot of our ports. 
but uh, that recidivist, the Patrick's Group, they are involved in negotiations regarding a 2.5% wage rise and negotiations regarding the new enterprise bargaining agreement period. Now, Mr Morrison used a very, very interesting phrase, which is going, is going to highlight what their uh, workplace strategy will be over the next three to four years. And that's the thing about the Anarchist World this week. We look ahead. We don't just react to their stupidity, but we look ahead and we try to alert people to what it means. Now, Mr Morrison, our beloved, your beloved Prime Minister, um, used the word COVID-19 recession, okay? It's the COVID-19 recession. And the fact that uh, unionised groups continue to bargain legally during the protected period is seen as some type of treachery. At the same time, we see businesses around this country, mainly the larger business, not the smaller business, but we see the large business around this country pocketing billions, now hundreds of millions of dollars of JobKeeper subsidies, which are supposedly there to keep their workers afloat. I mean, it's quite extraordinary what's been happening at Qantas recently, where they still get their $10 million bonuses, but that's another story. So here we have a situation where the MUA, is the Maritime Union of Australia, which is now part of the CFMMEU, is involved in legitimate, legal, protected uh, industrial activity, which has had minimal, and the key word is minimal impact, on shipping in this country and no impact on hospital supplies and pharmaceuticals despite what the corporate-owned media and the government gilded AB continues to tell you, find themselves now uh, in a situation of being the new Benoit, the new black beasts in this country because they had the audacity to put up their hands and say, well, we're trying to organise a new enterprise bargaining agreement with Patrick's. We've organised one with the Dubai Group and now with Patrick's. And the Patrick Group has pulled out all stops to muddy the waters and ensure that their strike activity, that's right, their strike activity uh, isn't uh, part, part of any discussion. Because, you know, you get two types of strikes, as I've said before. You get when Workers withdraw the labour, and obviously the workers here withdrew their labour for four hours, and they've got some overtime bans in place. But sometimes the investment class withdraws investment in order to get their way. So if you think this is just one little dispute, this is the beginning of the way that uh, Mr Morrison, the coalition government, is going to deal with any union activity in before the next federal election. It will be uh, deemed to be treasonable. It will be deemed to be extortionist because we now face a COVID-19 recession. Well, unfortunately, only some people face a COVID-19 recession. And if you look at the facts and figures, although I know that in the 21st century, facts and figures don't matter. Even if you pay $750 a year 
personal taxation like Mr Trump, you know, while being president of the US of A. The facts is, the facts and figures don't matter. It's all about belief systems. But those few people out there listening to the Anarchist World this week, well, some of you believe in facts and figures. Well, not believe, some of you accept. <laughs> Believing in facts and figures is a tautology. You accept facts and figures. And, um, you know, I know it's not a good thing to accept facts and figures in the 21st century. And I know it's not a good thing to have ethics or morals in the 21st century because you consider it to be a loser. You know, I'm a loser, you're a loser because we have ethics and morals because we want to put the interests of the many, that's the public interest before the corporate interest. We're losers because we want to devolve power, you know, share power. We're losers as far as they're concerned. And obviously the big winners during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatised revolution that has swept the world, planet Earth, little old Australia in the past 40 years have been those people with no morals no ethics, those people who are keen to stuff their pockets at the expense of the rest of the community. And all you've got to do every day is just look at what's happening around you to understand it's those people who are willing to bend the law to profit. Those people who are honest to pay their taxes, who work hard, get minimum wages, you know, who are wage earners, they're considered to be losers in 21st century Australia. I don't believe they're losers, but we're considered to be losers because we work, we march to a different drum, where we're concerned about the future of everyone, not because of some religious pretensions, but because we understand that to have a secure, safe society for you and me, the same... Uh, we should extend the same courtesies to those around us. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Tuscar. I'm hosting today's program. Yes, you can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. I set aside a few hours every week to uh, answer letters, and I continue to get letters. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can leave messages on 0439. 395-489-0439-395-489. I realise there's a lot of damaged people in the world. Sometimes you get some uh, really weird messages and sometimes you get some interesting messages, but that's the way life is today. Okay, let's move on. Now, I'd like to talk about the COVID-19 recession that's coming along and uh, the fact that... Uh, We've seen nothing yet. There are 900,000 businesses in this country which are receiving job keeper payments to support 3.1 million Australian workers. And most of these people are in low-paid jobs, hospitality, tourism, uh, to a lesser degree, healthcare, and the list goes on and on. It's expected that once the JobKeeper payment is phased out, and it will be phased out within the next six months, that 250,000, about one in four, about one in three, one in four of these businesses will be forced to shut down. Because don't forget, 
although the banks have been giving businesses a honeymoon as far as loans is concerned, and although some, not all, some landlords and landladies have uh, come to a negotiated settlement regarding rents uh, with people whose business has been closed down by the government because of the COVID-19 situation. The fact is that they're expected to pay that back rent. They're expected to pay all that back rent. And obviously, a lot of businesses have just kept open to receive the COVID-19 JobKeeper allowance, which is obviously more than the JobSeeker allowance. And once that is phased out, they will close their doors. And all you have to do, although it's difficult in the city of Melbourne, where you can only travel a five-kilometre radius unless you've got a work permit, but in the other parts of Australia, it's interesting to see the number of four-lease and four-sale signs which are cropping up, especially in the commercial sector, especially in the CBD around the country where a lot of companies are realising they don't need to lease expensive CBD space for their workers because they can work from home with technological innovations which have occurred that you may not need your workforce to go into, you know, headquarters wherever, except maybe once a week or once a month. And that's been the great lesson of COVID-19. So I expect that the unemployment rate, which currently stands at around 6-7%, which obviously has been artificially lowered by one, the definition of unemployment, and that is working less than one hour a week during a fortnight. That's right. If you work more than one hour, you're considered to be employed. And the other definition of unemployment is, you know, if you receive a job keeper, obviously not employed. You're not unemployed. So... I expect that the, and this is just not me, obviously, most economic commentators, and I'm not an economic commentator, I describe myself more as a social commentator, but most economic commentators think that the unemployment rate will may even reach 15%. It's just an extraordinary situation. Now, when the bank honeymoon on repayment of home loans and business loans comes to an end, and it's slowly coming to an end, many people will be in the position of not having a job and not being able to service their repayments, which means we may have an increasing number of people who will be forced out of rental accommodation, out of their own homes, and be forced to sell in the marketplace where they maybe sell their homes, which are jointly owned between them and the banks, and they'll actually owe the banks money once the home has been sold because the money that was lent to them to buy that particular home is more. This is in the United States of America where if you know you can't pay your mortgage repayment, you leave your key in the kitchen table and walk out. In Australia, as far as the banking sector is concerned, they will chase you for eternity unless you declare yourself bankrupt for eternity, for any money you owe on an outstanding loan, if the sale of that property does not meet the loan that uh, you took out. So, big problems. We face huge problems as a community. And when I say we, it's not that small section of the site owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. 
It's not the investment class which continues to benefit from negative gearing and franking credit and other corporate welfare. That's about 8% of the population. The people who will be paying the price will be those people in casualised, poorly paid, part-time work. Those people who uh, do a lot of the necessary work but receive minimal reward for their efforts. And obviously, many of these jobs, it's women who dominate those particular workforces. And with the closure of borders for uh, years, possibly, you'll find the tourist industry basically dead on its feet. And many people involved in the tourist industry usually are low-paid. Many of them are a majority of women. It's the same in hospitality. And the list goes on and on. So what does this government say? Well, I know there's a budget next week, and we'll analyse that budget on the program next week. But what does the government say? Well, we need to remove JobKeeper. We need to reduce JobSeeker. And this is exactly what's happening today. So we're not asking the corporate sector to help out. We're giving them money hand over fist. We're not asking the corporate sector to pay a little bit of extra tax. We're not asking those who invest their money in the stock market to pay a 1% stock market uh, uh, tax. You know, for every dollar they invest, one cent goes to the Treasury. You can raise $120 billion doing that, the stock market turnover tax. We're not asking the corporate sector, especially those corporations which pay voluntary taxation. And, uh, you know, I know everybody was a little bit uh, perplexed about Mr Trump's tax... Uh, payment of $725, but I've got a better one for you. I've got a better one. Now, five years ago, I was involved in a campaign which, uh, where we picketed the offices of Murdoch in Melbourne in South Bank for over a year, despite police harassment and private security guard harassment, because supposedly it was private property. And the reason we were picketing the office once a week was a very simple reason. The Murdoch Empire received an $865 million tax refund from the Australian Taxation Office because of a lot of, a lot of clever accountancy, very clever accounts, totally legal. Well, we think it was totally legal, but um, the federal government refused to take the matter to court. So Trump isn't the only person who... Uh, minimises his taxes to nothing and relies on corporate welfare in order to uh, maximise his empire. All we have to do is look at our own billionaires in this country and see how they've become billionaires and how they've been able to you know, minimise their tax. And there's one image which will stay in my mind till the day I die, and hopefully I'll die at 102. If there's one image, one image, it's... Uh, seen these billionaires protest when the Rudd Labor government attempted to introduce a, a resources super profit tax. I mean, it was just extraordinary to see them carry on about the fact they may have to pay a few extra dollars in order to assist the population. So the Morrison-led government will be putting the pressure on the very people who need support in order to dig our way out of the COVID-19 led recession. 
they will not be putting pressure on the corporate sector. They will be giving them investment allowances. That's right. To invest a dollar will give you a buck. Instead of investing in the public sector, they'll be investing in the private sector. And we'll go on and on. All right, let's move on. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I know I won't be wrong because this is the way these governments work and will continue to work while we allow the corporate sector to get away with a highway robbery. Let's move on. Social housing. I was interested. That's right, horrible word, social housing. I was interested to see there were 300 community organisations of trade union bodies which pleaded with the federal government in order to invest in social housing. 300 organisations. I can assure you, defending extent public housing and public housing, everybody's business, didn't sign that undertaking. I can assure you. Now, to give you an example of how a small group can actually have an impact, the Andrews-led Labor government was so concerned about its housing policies before the last state election two years ago in November uh, was it 2018 because of the pressure we placed on them. And we're only a small, minuscule, insignificant group that they promised to build another 1,000 public housing units, which they actually haven't done. It was just a promise to get a few votes and get their mate Martin Foley, who's now the health minister across the line, is then the housing minister. But everybody's talking about social housing and affordable housing and community housing. Everybody. Nobody talks about public housing. Public housing is publicly owned and publicly managed. And if there's one state in this country that has been at the lead of the privatisation revolution, it's Victoria. Not only have they privatised the public sector and made the public sector the servants of the private sector, they've also privatised what's left of their... They're working tooth and nail to privatise what's left of the public housing sector. Now, we had a very simple policy. It was very simple. The Victorian state governments, state governments around the country, uh, raise a lot of money through stamp duty, right? The Victorian state government was raising around $6 billion a year for stamp duty, which it was using not for public housing, but for other activities. Stamp duty revenue, which is the the money which is raised from a tax when you buy a home, and it's quite significant, in stamp duty revenue is directed to public housing, you could spot purchase 25,000 to 30,000 units or homes across the state in Victoria and house 100,000 people in public housing every year. And with the increased pressure on housing because of the COVID-19 recession and increasing people and an increasing number of people defaulting on rents and mortgage repayments and increasing homelessness, you could easily house people in secure housing for 25% of their income. All it takes, as we kept saying over and over again, was legislation to go through Parliament. We've seen legislation go through the Federal Parliament, which uh, extends the state of emergency powers uh, 
to the uh, state government for another six months. We've seen extraordinary legislation go through Parliament to deal with COVID-19. But not one cent is de- redirected to the public housing sector. You want to decrease homelessness. You want to increase security of ha- security as far as people's housing arrangements are concerned. We need to rapidly extend the public housing sector. And that does not necessarily mean building, 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 building. In the 1980s and 1990s, the spot purchasing program allowed public tenants to be housed in homes in community settings across the state of Victoria in the metropolitan and the regional area. So when you look at the concept of housing, forget about social housing, affordable housing, community housing. It is All it is is housing, which is owned by the private sector, managed by the private sector to provide supposedly low-cost, secure accommodation to people. And we know what happens when the private sector dominates any field of human activity. Just look at what's happened as far as the energy market is concerned, as far as the aged care sector is concerned, as far as early childhood development is concerned, as 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 far as the private health insurance is concerned, as far as the banking is concerned, as I keep saying over and over again, when you give one section of society carte blanche to do whatever it likes, what you will see is the maximisation of profits at the expense of the individual and the community. So when I use the word creeping assumption at the beginning of the program, as I said, it gave me goosebumps at my spine. So the creeping assumption among every public institution, every media organisation in this country, every privately owned institution in this country, the assumption is it's only the private sector that can actually deliver the goods. And this is the mantra that they've been pushing for the last four decades. They've forgotten historically the public sector grew out of people demanding access to basic services which the private sector was not able to provide at a reasonable price for the population. That's what saw the growth of the public sector around the world. That's what what pushed the growth of public housing, public hospitals, social security systems. It was, you know, unemployment benefits, old age benefits, and the list goes on and on. People weren't handed that on on a platter. It occurred through struggle, and we have seen all those institutions which were built up through the blood, sweat, and tears of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents being given away to the corporate sector. We have seen that, and we continue to see that ad nauseum. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscan. I'm hosting today's program, Anarchist World, this week. Now, a few uh, addresses and YouTube sites and all that, if you're interested. If you're not, it's your loss. Um, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Have a look at it. I do a presentation once a week. 
public interest before corporate interest, YouTube channel, you may find of some interest. If you want to join public interest before corporate interest, go to pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net, download the application form. There's no point complaining and jumping up and down and crying in your soup and throwing a brick for your TV or pulling out the uh, cord on your uh, computer or uh, grinding it down in a, you know, in a, in a fit of frenzy. I used to tell them, you want change, it's not going to come through the virtual world. Change comes from people having their feet on the ground, getting involved, you know, making it, you know, changing the political debate, changing it radically. So if you want change, think about it. Number again, you can leave a message with an 0439 395 489. Quite happy to send you out application forms if you can't download them from pipsy.net because you haven't got a computer or a printer. Happy to send you some, as I said before. A few other Facebook, you go to my private, not private, go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, or Toscano for the public. Uh, Twitter, which we haven't used for a while. I think it's Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U-S. Instagram, Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I A-U-S. And all this goes on and on. Lots of stuff out there for you to have to look at. Now, I'd like to end the program by talking about public health. Now, you may find this extraordinary, but most of the issues that we've had in Victoria regarding uh COVID-19, the second wave, which has resulted in over 790 deaths, almost 800 and almost 19,000 people being infected and the destruction of the economy, was was directly due to the fact that we don't actually have public health sector in Victoria. In 2011 was the last time the public health officer was trained. And it's quite extraordinary to see that Professor Sutton is the chief medical officer who's, um, you know, been advising the government regarding what to do regarding COVID-19, really has minimal power as far as the Department of Human Services is concerned. It's the bureaucrats that make the final decisions, whether it's a transport accident commission, you know, whether it's the workplace, work cover, whether it's the Department of Human Services and Health. The final decisions that are made are not made by the medical authorities who have the experience, but they're actually made by the department. And if they're not made by the department directly, they're made by doctors who are employed by the department. His major task is to ensure that the uh, department always wins. And I can (laughs) vouch that from personal experience. So there's no public health. So why is public health important? Well, the greatest improvements in human health have not been due to vaccination or antibiotics, but to public health initiatives. Now, again, I'm a city I'm familiar with, Melbourne. In the 1850s and 1860s and 1870s and 1880s, and you're thinking, what are you talking about, Joe? That was over 100 years ago. We don't care. Well, maybe you should care. Over 50% of children who were born to working people would die every year through avoidable diseases like typhoid, typhus, gastrointestinal diseases. And when sewage was uh, extended into the inner suburb of Melbourne, the mortality rate dropped to below 5%. I mean, in those days, the rich lived on the hills and the poor lived in the gullies. It was very simple because 
obviously the shit from the rich would run down to the poorer areas as well as the shit from the poor would sit around and become a breeding ground for uh, communicable diseases. So public health became exceptionally important as far as um, uh, providing health care. And all the health departments which were created had a, a large, had a significant public health sector. And we saw that as far as infant and child maternal centres were concerned. This is across the country. We saw it as far as uh, public health officials being able to be involved in campaigns to reduce illness. But with the advent of vaccination and antibiotics, what we saw was, because we had magic bullets in order to deal with the situation, we saw that the importance of public health officers and a public health program, which was run by the government of the day, uh, fell into disrespect. Although, in the 21st century, we have issues which we face as a community and as a state and as a, and as a country that are totally reliant on having a public health network with public health officers which who are properly trained and who are deployed uh, in a decentralised fashion across the major cities and the regional areas. But in Victoria in 2011, that stopped. It stopped to such an extent that the Chief Health Officer was pretty low down on the pecking order as far as the Department of Human Services and Health is concerned. And we've seen what happens when that occurs, when he wasn't even consulted regarding the hotel quarantine uh, situation. Not even because, as I said, there was a creeping assumption the private sector was going to sort it all out. So what does a public health officer do? The public health officer's main function is to prevent disease or minimise disease. And we have many disease processes in our community which would benefit from a significant public health sector. And I'm not talking about pandemics. I'm talking about simple things like cancer, diabetes, chronic pain, mental health issues, infant welfare, family violence. And what we have is a piecemeal system with privately run organisations trying to fill the gaps because governments have vacated this area. No money or minimal money, less than 2% in Victoria, which I'm familiar with the figures, is invested in public health. We've reached a situation where magic bullets are no longer the solution to many of our healthcare problems. They're chronic issues which need change as far as people's behaviour is concerned, as far as what they eat is concerned, where people need assistance in order to approach these issues and to leave it totally in the private sector is a recipe for disaster as we've seen the pandemic with COVID-19 when there are no mechanisms in place as far as uh, the Department of Human Services was concerned in Victoria to use staff to provide public health advice to people. So social and preventative medicine 
to any healthcare system. It's all very well waiting for the ambulance to bring you the disasters, but what we need to be able to do is prevent those disasters from occurring or minimise the extent of the disasters occurring. And if disasters occur, well, then we can approach it. For example, the very successful um, norm uh, campaign in the 1990s regarding obesity, which is becoming a major issue in this country, and it's not a personal problem, as a lot of people think. The question of obesity is about the type of society we have, the privatisation of uh, food uh, sources, and all this goes on and on as far as obesity is concerned, the uh, addition of sugar to most processed foods, and again, this is where a social and preventative medicine health department can have a significant impact where you train people. You train people to be public health officers. It becomes a profession which is reintroduced in the community. It is supported by government, not the private sector. Because when you leave it up to the private sector, we see the situation we find ourselves in today where it took ages to control you know, cancer from smoking, where we have no control over the type of additives which are added to food. And again, a strong social and preventative medicine department within any health department has significant impacts on reducing illness in the community and reducing the um, effects of chronic illnesses in an ageing population. But we have no discussion about that. There's never any discussion about that. In Victoria, they closed it down, and now we see the consequences when we are faced with a social issue, which is a pandemic, when there was no infrastructure, there was no corporate memory, just the creeping assumption that the public, that the private sector will deal with it all. Well, the private sector is one mission. One mission. It's very simple. I mean, anarchists have two missions to devolve power and share wealth. The private sector has one mission, to maximise profits for their major shareholders or owners, irrespective of the human, social, environmental, national cost. It's very simple. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489 0439 395 489. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Yes, I still receive mail and yes, I still answer it. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can go to my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public. You can go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest uh, webpage. Pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. Go to the Anarchist Media Institute webpage, Anarchist Age at, Anarchist Age at, was it? That's right, info at Anarchist Age. Anarchist Media, just go to anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. You've been listening to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live to radio, community radio stations across the country. And there is one message that I want you to remember is that if you want change, you need to be part of that movement. Without your support, nothing will change. 
We can put ideas across in the community, but unless you make that effort, nothing will change. If there's one history lesson we can learn, and that is that change comes from people making the effort to create that change. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in to The Anarchist World this week, next week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.